Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Say Something Interesting, the follow-up podcast from East Lake Tri-Cities Church. Uh, my name is Brent. My name is Brent. My name is Brent, and uh, with me, not as usual, uh, with me today is a special guest, uh, a friend of mine, a professor at Northwest University. His name is Dr. Blaine Charette. Blaine, how are you? Very good, thank you. Excellent. Thanks for being here. Yeah, really appreciate nice to be it. Here. Uh, Megan is not with us. She's usually my co-host for this, uh, this thing that we do. Uh, but she had a birthday weekend and spent it over in Seattle. So you guys traded places <laughs> and, uh, she had a chance to go to the Mariners game last night and I, I saw some pictures of it, uh, her and her boyfriend there. And I texted her this morning and I said, sorry for the Mariners loss. Sorry that we weren't able to come up with a win for you. And she went into it saying, uh, I had no expectations <laughs> of anything, which is basically how you have to be a Mariners fan at this point. You've right. been in Seattle for how long now? Uh, 25 years, close to 25 years. And you've never seen the Mariners in a playoff game. Is that true? <laughs> well, I've seen Mariners games. Yeah. Mariners I'm not sure games. how many wins I've seen. Yeah, exactly. Not a lot. Yeah. Uh, I think 2001 was our, our last big go around or I don't know. It's been, it's been 17 years or something since, uh, since a playoff berth. And it definitely is not looking like it's happening in this year either. So, uh, so she's gone. She's out of uh, out of commission for this week. So, uh, Blaine has spent the entire weekend with us. We've been having conversations like the one you're about to hear pretty much all weekend long. I've been talking his year off, and and uh, so the lat he's getting on a plane here in about two hours. Um, so, as a, kind of a, a sending off gift, we're recording this last one for all of you. He spoke this morning in both of our weekend services. Did a standalone message on Second Corinthians chapters three and four. Um, he also did Friday night. We had a uh, uh, East Lake U class where he did uh, the, the spirit of, uh, the spirit at work in the Book of Matthew, uh, and then Saturday night last night I, we, this like patio chat thing. We've just been working to the bone. So I appreciate you taking time uh, to be here and kind of uh, finish this thing off. Um, typically, he teaches. New Testament courses at Northwest. I took uh, several different courses from him, a book of Matthew, and a, a text within context Matthew book. Uh, we did a, a theology vocation class, I remember specifically with you. But then you've also had taught some gen ed classes that uh, kind of everybody had to take. Um, I can't remember the, was it uh, Pentecostal theology? Is that what it, that's what it used to be called. I don't know what you call it now, maybe, but... Yeah, well, Jack Wisemore usually teaches that, but okay. uh, at the general undergrad level, I usually do the New Testament survey class, and um, yeah, that typically that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so spends most of his year doing, you know, most of the school year doing lectures and, and that sort of style of teaching. Um, and then even in the summer, occasionally we'll do lectures at different places or lots of writing. We've been talking about how his kind of transition to some of that. Um, and then every once in a while, it gets a chance to be able to come and do something a little different and speak and teach and do the whole preaching style thing. And so we're, we're honored to be able to have you come over and do this. Uh, and I, I mentioned downstairs earlier how many times a year do you get to do this? And you mentioned, I can't remember what you said, five, six times a year maybe? Yeah, something like that. What do you notice differently about a lecture teaching versus a preaching style? Well, I'm kind of mindful of that because I'm always a little bit worried that I will have a hard time breaking out of just kind of the lecture form. So sure. every time I preach, I'm always thinking, huh, is this too much like a lecture, right? <laughs> <laughs> um you know, I do like preaching because it does give you an opportunity to... I mean, sermon shouldn't really be a lecture, so it should be something different. I do try... I'm more conscious when you're preaching, obviously, of of kind of the the so what element in Scripture. The practical, you know, what do I yeah, do with this? Because sometimes in lecturing, you kind of maybe build up in a course of a series of lectures to that what 
what's the point yeah. of it? You know, the whole purpose of it. Uh, sometimes you'll take a long time in a course, maybe developing before you lead up to those payoffs. In a sermon, you kind of have to get to the payoff relatively quickly. Yeah, if I don't right? get to the payoff soon, <laughs> yeah. what am I here for? You yeah, know? so you're kind of always conscious of that, that you have to help the people kind of see the point, you know, within that half-hour framework. Yeah. So I, I kind of have taken the approach of, yes, I agree with that, and but I also then, we teach in series here, and so I'll do a four, five, six-part series where I try and let people know, hey, this is the opening you know, part mm-hmm. of a series. It's Imagine it kind of like a lecture in that all I'm trying to do at this point is pique your interest and have you go, hmm, yeah, I do wonder about that. If I have to come up with an answer for you or the payoff every single week, yeah. I, I feel like it's almost disingenuous, like I'm yeah. having to lead you in that. But I get it in terms of a, like a lecture you could do, you know, you've got a, three months with these kids or these yeah, students, and yeah. you've got a long time to kind of build a case for it. I don't have that long. I can't, I'm not a, like a 62 series, you know, week series lecture or um, series type teaching guy. Uh, but uh, I, I definitely can see the, the, the yeah, so when you invite me, I only have the one opportunity. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. Kind of, <laughs> you always have to land the plane, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so that's that's definitely, and then and then we threw like a curveball in uh, on you as well because uh, with the light situation today, <laughs> um, it's uh, definitely in a classroom setting. The lights are all on; it's fluorescence. You can see everybody. You can yeah. see facial expressions. You can tell who's falling asleep in the back and who's not, and who's engaged and who's asking the right questions. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and then on a Sunday like today, it's like spotlights in your face and i could tell even at first service you're going oh it's a lot brighter than i thought it would be up here i can't really connect with people how does that change the way that you do that well it 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 is i mean i eye contact does become i always find i kind of feed off a little bit on kind of the eye contact so you can kind of get a sense of how you're doing you know do i need to kind of liven this up a bit or is everybody kind of tracking with you so when, when i couldn't see the audience especially in the first sermon it's sort of like yeah, I'm just, I might as well be in a booth. I'm just kind of winging it here, right? <laughs> <laughs> I could have done this upstairs. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. I could just uh, phone it in. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I do that because I'm, uh, I'm scared of the audience, too. I just, I, I, if I'm just preaching in the blind spot, I can imagine that the room is empty, you yeah. know, uh, which is always, it, it, uh, yeah, whatever. But, uh, and then also uh, something that uh, I'm trying to think came up in that whole teaching thing. One, we had a TV that was kind of freaking out on us that, mm. that is always more <laughs> distracting than not. Um, you as a teacher, I've always wanted to know. I mean, I took undergrad classes at Northwest. We had, uh, oh, no, Pentecostal Doctrines was Jack Wisemore. I remember yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so it must have been something. That class was at 8 o'clock in the morning, which... You know, there are people who get up, you guys, you work jobs that are seven, six, seven, you know, in the morning, eight, eight seems like, oh, what are you doing sleeping in? But when you're a college student, you're living that dorm life, 8 a.m. comes early and, uh, or at least it feels like it did. I remember, uh, I remember specifically like there would be occasionally, occasional mornings where I would be drifting off. There would be some, uh, repeat offenders in terms of falling asleep during class. And when the lights are on and it's very vi- visible from the front and the class sizes, I mean, there might be some that are are rather big for you, but I remember probably, what's your average class size? 20 maybe? Yeah, somewhere around there. Yeah, 18, yeah. 20, something like that. I mean, are, do you notice that? Do you do you see people? I mean, you've probably seen some doozies. You probably have some great stories of people trying hard not to fall. Not that you're a bad lecturer. I'm just saying <laughs> that just happens in college life, right? Yeah, especially in those early morning classes, you probably, or what I find, <laughs> after you know, lunch. the two hard times, yeah, after lunch, early morning, those are usually 
oftentimes for, from the professor's point of view, those are the ones where you really have to work hardest, it seems, because the students aren't necessarily bringing their best game. So you have to kind of compensate as the professor. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, do you do you have a thick enough skin not to take offense at that? Or is it still, is it? You know, I think, you know, one thing that when you've done this as many years as I have, you, it, yeah, if a student's zoning out, you don't take it as personally as, I remember when I was a young professor, I would, I would sometimes pray, you know, 15 minutes before going into a classroom because you were just so, kind of worried and you take those things so personally that if if a student wasn't paying attention it's like oh gee i've just really failed them right yeah whereas now i don't take it so personally i realize okay it's probably not so much me but them you know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, i don't worry so good. much about it anymore good yeah. and uh, i'm gonna date myself at this point but when i was at northwest for undergraduate uh, iPhones were not yet a thing. Either that or I didn't own one. I wasn't wealthy enough to get one. I remember getting one at when I was working for my dad back here. So that means I was at school with the cell phone. I'm not that old, please, but a, not a smartphone with no access to internet or any useful internet to speak of. Yeah. I would imagine that that is transposed, you know, uh, that's a whole different beast in in the higher education realm yeah, of distractions in terms of... Yeah, there's definitely more distractions that you need to be aware of. So when I first started teaching, it was students with pens and notepads. So there wasn't even, um, you know, it was long before laptops and yeah. things like that. And then you've got, then you have laptops where you never know. And then once on once they're online, you never know what they're really looking right. at on their laptop. Fantasy and then football you, and everything else, yeah, right? Yeah, and you're not quite sure whether they're... You know, they could have Bible software, that could be what they're looking at on their phone, or they could be just texting a friend, so yeah. you never really... So you try to give them the benefit of the doubt that they're... I was always on focused. Bible software, if you were asking, so <laughs> <laughs> I can vouch for that. Yeah, I, uh, I try to project the, the best outcome. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> Believe the best about them. Good for you. That's, that's very generous of you. Very generous. Uh, you've been at Northwest for how many years now? I think I asked that earlier. Yeah, this is... Um, this is the end of my 23rd year. I just finished 23. Wow. Excellent. And uh, l you live in the Muckleteo Edmonds area. Yeah. Love that area? I do. It's it's close to Puget Sound. So, you know, there's a lot of nice park area near there. It's further, you know, the further south you get from there, the more congested it gets as you move towards, say, Kirkland or, you know, Kirkland Bellevue or Seattle. So I kind of like being a little bit away from the hub. And you're probably used to the climate and the the weather and all of these things that were are like that over there, right? You know, I don't mind the Seattle weather. You know, I I really like England. I did my PhD in England, and I really kind of like that kind of moderate climate, even if it means a fair bit of rain. Yeah, you know, I grew up in Canada, where the winters could be very harsh, brutal, right? And Calgary, and I, right? And then I lived in Georgia. Yeah, yeah. And then I lived in Georgia for a while, where the summers can be almost unbearable as far as the <laughs> heat and humidity. So I kind of liked. Uh, I kind of liked. I don't mind the West Coast climate. Okay, yeah. good. That, that's excellent. Uh, and higher education, did you always know a professor was the pathway for you? Is that Was that a dream since a kid, or is that how did you know, that transpire? Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I uh, When I went into university, I had no idea what I was going to do when I first went from high school into university. So I started. I actually ended up changing my major almost every semester. Hmm. So I started off as an English major and then a history major and then a classics major. And then and then I just wasn't motivated. So I just woke up one morning and realized, you know, I'm not really 
this isn't really a, a good thing for me right now. So I just ended up dropping out of my classes. I ended up traveling. You know, I kind of had this travel bug a bit too. So I ended up working for a while and then just sort of spending about a year traveling around. And then while I was doing that, um, you know, God always speaks to me in odd ways. I remember I was at a Leonard Skinner concert in London, England, and I felt <laughs> God speaking to me in the middle of this concert saying, when you go back to... Uh, you know, when you go back home, enroll in a uh, Christian university or college. So that's exactly what I did. And then it was when I, so even though I grew up in a Christian, you know, I grew up Christian, I wasn't exposed at all to biblical research or scholarship. So it wasn't until I was at this Christian school and I took a class, I remember it was this class on the book of Acts, and with, you know, all of a sudden these bells start going off, and these lights start going off, where I think, okay, this is a whole area of study I had no idea even existed, even though I grew up in the church. And this, and this brings together my literary interests, my historical interests, my classical interests. So it's funny how biblical studies is kind of like there all the time. It's kind of hiding in plain sight. But it wasn't really until I enrolled in this Christian school that I was aware of that. And then from that point on, it's like I kind of knew exactly what God was directing me towards. Because there's not, you know, not a lot of people who I think... Um start off going, I want to be a professor of theology. You know what I mean? I, maybe, yeah. maybe it gets there. I mean, they self-select out because it's a tough road to get to. You know, that's a lot of years of schooling. Yeah, um, That's a lot of papers to write words to kind of produce. And, and um, it, it's, you know, when you think, uh, uh, like, I'm going to write a PhD, I'm going to write a dissertation, I'm going to write, I don't know how many pages of words on, on yeah. this esoteric, not esoteric sometimes, <laughs> but, you know, it yeah. can be, it can feel very, at that time, very esoteric idea of just this theology of thought, and that mm-hmm. uh, can feel a, a lot, very overwhelming. You did your graduate work, uh, not uh, your your doctorate work at... Uh, I did at the University of Sheffield in Sheffield. England. Okay. Yeah. And... Um, you know, I ended up doing it in Matthew because I couldn't make up my mind whether I wanted to specialize in Old Testament or New Testament, because you pretty well, you do a PhD in, if you're going to do a PhD in biblical studies, you usually do it either in Old or in New. I could, I was going back and forth, back and forth, and so then I kind of split the difference by working in Matthew, because Matthew is, it's not it's not an accident that Matthew stands at the very front of the New Testament because it's very much a bridge book. It's sort of this book that kind of connects the Old Testament to the New Testament. A very you mentioned this on Friday night. The most Jewish of the four Gospels. Yeah. Um. You, it starts off with the uh the anthology the uh, uh what's the word I'm looking genealogy. for there? genealogy yes yeah. uh, tying uh, some Old Testament the way of doing things the 40, 40, 40, 40 you know all that symbology yeah. and, yeah. and yeah. numerology pieces to it. Um, yeah, uh, Matthew's always been a very interesting book. It's it's been the most um, uh, one of the most theologically rich of those. Whereas Mark feels very, this is what happened. This is just history, and John feels yeah. very, you know, f- not flighty but lovey. You know, mystical, very you know, yeah, yeah. pro Jesus. You know, high Christology. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, I'm gonna take some things on stories that are gonna. You, you know, these the other three didn't write about this, but I'll write about it. I'm gonna jack up the timeline, the chronology, my own to kind of set a tone for this. Uh, and Luke is was typically written for a Greek audience, very outreach oriented, very you know different. Matthew seems to be like I think if if the if the Jewish people could get behind one of the Gospels, it would have been Matthew, right? I yeah. Mean, so I've always so I felt at that time I just really felt drawn to Matthew because I thought this is a good way I can because Matthew quotes and alludes to the Old Testament more than any of the other Gospels. So I thought, well, this is a way where I can still keep my foot in the Old Testament, 
but at the same time kind of do a New Testament dissertation. Yeah. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, you've got the Sermon on the Mount, which shows up again in uh, other Gospels, Luke specifically, but typically when it's quoted, um, most of the quotations come from Matthew's version of that story. Is yeah, that, I mean, well, that's true. I mean, Matthew's Gospel was the dominant Gospel in the early Church, so much of what we've memorized comes from Matthew. You know, Matthew, of the Synoptic Gospels, you know, John's very much a poet, but I would... I think arguably you could say that of the synoptic gospels, Matthew's the most po- most poetic in terms of his language. So if you just compare the Matthean version of the Lord's Prayer with the Lucan version of the Lord's Prayer, it's it's no accident that we end up memorizing the Matthean version. If you know, the, if you can recite the Lord's Prayer, you know Matthew's yeah, version. Yeah, that's right. You don't know Luke. And Same when you thing read Luke, you're like, that's close, but it's yeah. not quite right. Something's wrong. Because Matthew has this symmetry. You know, Matthew just understood, not that Luke didn't, but Matthew is very conscious of putting things in these structured kinds of ways. So he's very much, and that's just true, th- true throughout his gospel, there's just a lot of structure and parallelisms and things like that that Matthew... I don't know how deep you want to go into this, but I I, I have enjoyed, uh, as, uh, around Christmas time, always talking about the birth narratives, the difference between Matthew and Luke's version, because it doesn't show up anywhere in Mark. Mark yeah. just starts off with him in the desert, right? Uh, but in, in, in Matthew's version, it's the the wise men from afar it's it's a it's a a talk about um you know sort of royalty setting the tone for a royalty and and knowledge and uh very different from because I, I think most of the time when we think of christmas cards i mean we think of the th- we three kings of orient are right but that's mm-hmm. like minute to the shepherds and the angels appearance and all of that which doesn't really transpire in matthew's very what, do you, what yeah. do you think birth narrative wise What's Matthew's point with the birth narrative selecting the stories that he, or the way that he decided to tell the story? Well, a lot of it has to do with the kingship thing. So the genealogy, as you noted before, it starts with this genealogy, which is a royal genealogy. Yeah. So he kind of, different from the Lucan genealogy, more focuses on those kings after the time of David up till the time of the exile. So he puts Jesus in this kingly line, and then with the Isaiah 7.14 quotation and the Micah quotation, you know, he uses all these fulfillment quotations, yeah. which all have these kingly associations. And then you have King Herod, of course, being paranoid at the word of this one born king of the Jews. So the whole emphasis in Matthew is very much of this newborn king, but who ends up being rejected. You know, so right. they have to flee to Egypt to escape Herod. Uh, so you have kind of a preview of the passion narrative in Matthew. Yeah. So he really, in those first two chapters, he lays out a lot of the important themes he's going to want to develop later on. It becomes a preview gospel as a whole. And then, if we can, I want to fast forward to the end of Matthew, where Jesus is with his disciples, and it's the uh, ascension part of it. It's the Great Commission, right? So. Yeah. This is this is where it shows up the most, or if you've got it memorized, this is where you memorized it from. Go yeah. therefore into the whole, you know, entire, uh, and it's it's a message primarily for a Jewish audience to go into the entire world, letting telling the story about all of this. The irony is that they don't do that. Typically, it takes them a while <laughs> to do that, and Paul finally says, "Just give me the keys, I'll do it. You know, I'll go take care of this." Yeah. Um, but that's this. Uh, I just find it ironic that the message of this sh- this is meant for global consumption uh, yeah. or whatever yeah. is in the most intrinsic internal book of the four gospels, basically. Yeah, because it's very interesting. You know, earlier in chapter ten, when Jesus sends out his disciples, he deliberately tells them, "Don't go the way of the Gentiles." Right. right? 
only go don't to, cast your pearls yeah, before yeah swine. only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel yeah and so he very much kind of there's that sequence to redemption where Israel needs to in a sense have this first opportunity of refusal right or at least be able to even think of Acts one eight you know Jerusalem Judea Samaria then to the ends of the earth yeah there's that sequence which is kind of rooted in the the mission of God is that's outlined in the Old Testament, right, where it starts with Israel and then expands to the nation. So Matthew very much sticks to that script. So it's not really until after the resurrection of Jesus that the disciples are now told to go to all the nations. Yeah. Which would also include Israel. Right, yeah. right. So I, I didn't mean to spend this much time in Matthew, because you didn't <laughs> preach on Matthew today, not really, but uh, I knew you're, this is your area of expertise, and so I did want to kind of allow you to kind of elaborate and just show you, the listener, a little bit about what our conversations have kind of felt like. And I look at it, the clock, and it's already 21 <laughs> minutes in, and it feels like two minutes in. It's unbelievable. Um, I love this stuff. We spent most of our weekend talking through the book of Romans yeah. uh, with a, with some conversation that I, I, we won't go into because we did it already on Saturday night. But um, f- coming back to Matthew real quick, if somebody was to say, okay, I'm interested in this kind of stuff, I'm, I'm th- some of the stuff that you just brought up in the last few minutes have been has been interesting to me, what would be a good intro... Who would you recommend in terms of an introductory to Matthew, whether it's a commentary or some sort of a survey type thing? If you're teaching a class on Matthew, what's an essential gotta have this book? Or if you can't narrow it down to one, maybe a couple that you yeah. would recommend. Well, um, you know, for my money, probably the best commentary overall on Matthew, and a good introduction to Matthew is by um, Robert uh, Richard France, like R.T. France or Dick France, in the uh, Erdman's NICNT series. Now, France also wrote a very good introduction to Matthew. He wrote a more popular level commentary earlier on. But I just find, you know, I probably have a dozen or 15 commentaries on Matthew, and I just find that commentary, every time I go to it, I always feel that, yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very readable. A layperson could pick it up. It wouldn't be over their head, but it, he's a very good guide. If you type in N-I-C-N-T Matthew into Amazon search bar, you'll find it. it's a big red volume. One of my favorite commentary series. I've got the entire New Testament one. I'm slowly building up my Old Testament one. Um, I highly recommend. I, I agree in that. So, all right, let's spend a few minutes talking about uh, today's talk. We, sure. we, we, he spoke twice. We went out to lunch real quick, uh, and then we're back here. Usually we film these on Monday. I've had a little bit more time to simmer on it and think through some things. I apologize just for the sake of time. We haven't had that much time to do that, but you brought up uh, second Corinthians chapter 3 and chapter 4, Paul talking Mm -hmm. about uh, a a reminder, just a quick overview, a reminder that we've been, you know, the two different types of creation in in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, we've been created to be something great. We've also been created from nothing. Remember, both of those things are what I use, Paul would say, to remind myself that we we have these treasures in jars of clay, this contrast between yeah. oftentimes you don't think of treasure in jars of clay. They're in gold chests with lots of locks, and you know it's they're yeah. oak wood, and but it's like something great in something small. So depending on kind of where I'm at and what I need to be able to hear, uh, I've got this going for me of uh, that God's in control in spite of my circumstances, uh, and uh, that there's uh, that there's a balance that that I can be called to, and we do this uh, through the Spirit, through Jesus. And I, I mentioned this in second service, and I think it's so good when we look at Jesus's ministry. 
he had the ability to speak so greatly in grace and truth, which are, which are they can they coexist. They're different. Um, to to the the woman caught in adultery, he offers grace, and then he follows it up with truth. Even with the Pharisees, there's a lot of truth, but there's also you know you know they lo- yes they lord it over you, and they don't even follow their own stuff, but he includes them in the conversation instead of just completely writing. I mean, there's, there's still some grace there. If, if you can look hard enough and, and kind of find it, um, his, his pathway to be able to be so into both of those things is, is what I was thinking of, um, in how you were trying to draw the contrast between those two things and how this is what inspires Paul. Could we be more like this? Could we be people who, can deliver grace, but also speak truth when it needs to be spoken to ourselves and to the others and to others that we have in there. So, um, is that analogy? I, I use the analogy of the baseball coach and the kids, and sometimes you got to speak up to them, and sometimes you got to calm them down and be like, "Listen, it's, that's just a little league ball," you know? <laughs> yeah, because I mean, we do have this, uh, you know, this interesting dichotomy with respect to humans. That on the one hand, we are just simply we are of dust, right? We're just made of this common material, but at the same time, we're made in the image of God, and that God breathed His Spirit into that dust, right? Yeah. So we're animated by the very breath of God. So there's both this glory and humility that goes with being a human, which is we, which is kind of that we have to kind of walk with both of those in mind. Yeah, yeah. There's a proverb, and I can't remember the location of it off the top of my head, but it's it's one of my favorites. Every once in a while, we'll quote it. So if you've been a part of East, like you've probably heard me preach this three or four times, but it's that idea of give me neither poverty nor riches. Uh, don't give me so much that I may look at my all the stuff that I have and think, who's God? Why do I need Him? Yeah. But neither let me be poor, so that I, you know, therefore have to beg and therefore shame the name of of God. This idea of I, I don't want to live my life thinking I'm royalty. I'm super fine. You know, yeah. I'm great, but neither do I want to live so poorly that I'm just like, I beat myself down. You yeah. mentioned the hardness of heart, um, which is the the worst possible scenario. Yeah, because I think it's significant, this idea of clay, which gets so much play in the Bible, because clay, again, as I mentioned in the sermon, clay can be formed, it's a pliable substance, and one thing we always have to be careful about is what is shaping us, you know, what is forming us. Are we allowing God to form us, or are we allowing exterior things to form us? But even worse, you know, kind of the worst-case scenario in God in Scripture is the person who's just totally hardened. It's when we reach that lack of pliability that we're almost beyond hope. Yeah, and it's almost like at that point... You know, you can you can remake something so many different times that it gets so brittle and broken. You, it's just like I just throw it away and yeah. start start over again. Yeah, you that's know? right. Yeah. Um, so you've got that kind of analogy going on, and the the idea of the potter and the clay. I mean, that's definitely not foreign to scripture. That shows up in Isaiah and all, all, yeah. all over the place for that. So. Um, I'm trying to think of uh, anything else and anything uniquely that you thought. Um, was maybe something that you were, were going to include, but decided to go a different direction. You I, you do your notes a lot like mine. Um, so <laughs> we he mentioned it today before service. I've got thoughts down, and I know I, I know kind of the general direction I want to go sometimes. But then I want to kind of let it simmer for a little bit, so I don't I don't write out my thoughts completely because then I'm just reading from the text, and that doesn't feel natural to me. I'm like you. I've got big blank spaces. I'm going to write some things in. I'm going to add notes last minute. I'm going to go to Gary at 
you know, nine twenty nine and be like, Hey, I got this quote from somebody I really want to include in there. Yeah. Surely there was something that you, you felt like uh uh want didn't get in there, could have gotten in there. Well, probably if I had had more time, I could have um you know, Paul's whole you know, I kind of touch on at the very end of the sermon about, you know, the Philippians quotation about wanting to know you know, we talked earlier about John and the strong emphasis on knowing how oftentimes we're just totally ignorant about God. And part of what redemption is about is coming to know God, and Paul then taking that to that step that, and what does it mean to know God? It needs to know him at the level both of his power shown through the resurrection, but also through this sufferings, through this conforming to his death. Um, that Because as I mentioned before, you know, something that's just really kind of impressed on me just in recent years is repentance, which I see as maybe something that we've kind of lost touch on in uh in recent theology, because I think we mentioned on Friday night how I think sometimes we confuse repentance with confession, as 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 I, long as we simply confess things. But I was hoping you would go into that more because yeah. you did a great job on that on on Saturday night talking uh, or Friday or Saturday, I can't yeah. remember which one. It's all blending together, but about <laughs> confession and repentance are not the same thing. Yeah, because I think sometimes we just uh, people confess their sins, but there's not that death. You know, Paul puts it very dramatically. You've got, and Jesus talks about dying to oneself, dying right? To self, right. That, so repentance is this radical departure from the way you were, right? And so that God can, so God really can do a complete reset in your life. Yeah. Whereas a confession isn't as radical as that, and that's why I think sometimes there's this failure to launch in a lot of Christian experience because we haven't really died in order to enter into the new life. We try to just get into the new life, still carrying a lot of the old life along with us. And we think that I'm sorry is enough, <laughs> yeah, that's you know, right. yeah. or I'll go to church and make up for it. Yeah, right? that's right. I'll, I'll do other things. Listen, I'm not willing to give that up or die to that yet, but look, here, I'll give this or I'll yeah. serve this or I'll attend this many times at church. Yeah. And it's, and it's like, that's, but that feels transactional it feels yeah that's right you know i get a free yeah. pass if i'm good in some other different yeah. areas yeah 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 so we we see it as a work that we're now going to do rather a kind of a gradual work we're going to do rather than this uh gift of a reset but uh, which involves our own death which then leads to the next thing that i wanted to bring up this idea of being reborn you mentioned that that's very much you know, John sort of language. Yeah. Of, and I hadn't thought of it. I mean, I know Nicodemus' story is is only in John, I think, if I remember yeah, right. And, right. And it's um and it's uh this idea of him questioning, you know, how can one be reborn if if one's already been born? <laughs> like thinking yeah. of crawl and he uses this you know, obviously hyperbole of what do I gotta crawl back into my mom's <laughs> tummy to make this thing happen? Yeah. But this idea of uh, of a hard reset of being reborn means it's that post it's that post death thing it's i've that's i'm i'm an entirely new different being in that yeah. way yeah yeah um so therefore that's not that's not me anymore that's not i don't have to hold on to that you know yeah and so there's different you know so john's got his own way of doing that you know in 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 say in the synoptics when when peter and john want these positions of authority again they want to kind of have that glory of being in the image of god how does Jesus respond? Can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with? You know, he's talking about his death. Yeah. In other words, 
And that's what Paul says, we can't really know the power of the resurrection until we're willing to share in the sufferings. Yeah. And I think sometimes that doesn't get the play it probably needs to get in uh, a lot of uh, Christian teaching. Until we carry around the death. What, what does he say there in, in uh, chapter 4? You mentioned that he... Yeah, in our, bo- yeah, in our bodies, we, we, we carry kind of the death, in or- death of Christ in order that the life of Christ might be also seen in our I, bodies. It reminds yeah. me of the idea, the concept of memento mori, which is the death's, yeah. the death's head skull on the, on the philosopher's desk, right? Yeah. Which is basically, you've seen it in movies or whatever, and but a death's, a death's head is like, just remember your 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 hum, your humanness, your mortality. Um, that eventually, this is how we all end up, no matter yeah. how you spend your time yeah. doing things. And yeah. it's not a it's not a depressive outlook necessarily, but just a grounding more more in line with that. I mean, that's what I find interesting about that passage out of um, you know Second uh, Corinthians is. Somebody could look at that and they'd think, gee, what a pessimistic right. thing. Because he's talking about all the sort of setbacks and hardships and horrible things in his life. And yet it's this hope that keeps bubbling up in the midst of that. In spite of this, I can't yeah, I yeah. can't shake this idea that there's still hope. So it's like for Paul, there is no worst case scenario because even in the worst case scenario, there's still hope that buoys everything up. Yeah. Man, really good. If you uh if you're listening to this podcast and did not get a chance to hear uh, or you know, be here on Sunday to to listen to his teaching uh, for travel or whatever sake. Then you need to go back eastlaketricities.com/talks. We're gonna have the audio posted there as well as the link to our other podcast, which is a podcast just basically from the talks on Sunday. So, man, we really appreciate you traveling uh, out here and making this uh, making this thing happen. We typically close off our podcast with something that we have found interesting, something we've read, experienced, watched, uh, whatever. Um, I'll go and I'll give you a free pass. I know I. Didn't and prep you too hard. In fact, you didn't even know about this podcast until like Friday morning. I was like, oh yeah, by the way, we're going to also, before you get out of town, do this. Uh, my wife and I just finished, and I know we're late to the game. It's been out for a couple years, uh, but the Won't You Be My Neighbor documentary on Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers, you probably know him as Mr. Rogers, um, that was has been on HBO. I think it's been out so long now. I think you can get it on Amazon Prime. Uh, I think there's other venues to get it other than HBO now. Uh, but uh, the story of Fred Rogers, there was a book that came out too. I bought the book. I have not read it yet. Yet. So I watched the movie before I read the book. Sorry, guys. Um, but it's uh, it's just an, a, a, an amazing story of a guy, a Presbyterian minister who had this heart for kids and, and um, just the way that he kind of um, did his thing in a, a, a unique... It, his story's great. I mean, it's nostalgic because we all, you know, at least my age group, kind of we watched that as a kid. That was part of the, you know, part of our childhood or we... the early stories of that and the trolley and Daniel Tiger and all the stuff, um, to hear how, uh, you know, progressive he was in terms of a voice. You don't think of Mr. Rogers as progressive. I, I don't think of Mr. Rogers as progressive, but, um, in the, in the, like the, the sixties and seventies and, and even eighties, there was, there was issues with, you know, coming out of segregation, but we're still kind of like, there's still some stuff going on. And there was a, in the, in the South, a, a, a white owner of a pool who did not want black people swimming in his pool. And he went out as they're swimming and then went out with pool chemicals and they have video of him 
pouring it in and to trying to get him out of this pool. And the next week on Mr. Rogers, he's washing his feet in a pool and he invites the policeman. And I can't remember the name of, of him at this point, a black man though. And, and says, come on, soak your feet. It's nice. And, and, and sending a message to the kids, trying to get them at a young age to understand, Hey, you don't have to think like that, you know, and very progressive, very edgy for public television. And, and he does it with just that innocent smile. And uh, I just, it was interesting. That was, that was a great kind of perspective on it that I, I, I probably didn't catch as a kid. And now you grow up and you're like, Oh, of course that, the, the, uh, the owner pouring the chemicals, that's a terrible idea. You know, that's, that's horrible. What are you doing? And, to be able to come at it from a place of, of, um, hopefully, you know, a better side of history or definitely a better side of history, look at it and be like, what got me there? There's definitely a lot of people who could say whether they know it or not, Fred Rogers and his work was a, a part of making that happen. So, yeah, I would endorse that too. I remember seeing that documentary when it first came out in the theaters and just being so impressed with, uh, yeah, so impressed with the way he operated. Yeah. And it really, a truly a man of faith because whole time he's doing this and he's an ordained minister as well. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And chose yeah. the path and got ordained to do not pastoral work, but film work. Yeah, that's that was... right, to work, do the, exactly what he did. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, this is like a missionary, but I'm going to do it in Hollywood, basically. Or, yeah. Or yeah. in Pittsburgh, I Pittsburgh, guess, is where they yeah. filmed it. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, no, that was that was entertaining stuff. And to hear all, all the legends of that, he used to be a Navy SEAL and, and wore a sweater because his tattoos, you know, <laughs> not true. I mean, just got, that kind of disheartened me a little bit. I always thought that, that was... Uh, definitely a part of it. I'm, I'm stealing all the thunder away from this thing. You should definitely watch it. It's worth an hour and a half of your time. But uh, anyways, excellent. Uh, anything else? No. Well, thanks for the invite. I enjoyed this. Okay, excellent. Uh, hopefully we'll have you back again at some point. Uh, sure. And uh, if, if you're willing, we're willing. It's just a matter of are, are you willing. Oh, yeah. You took a risk. <laughs> if you watch on Sunday, you'll, you'll probably see the story behind the third time's a charm getting him here, and uh, <laughs> and we survived the weekend. Well, we have to drive to the airport still, but other than that, we survived the weekend. So, all right, everybody, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Say Something Interesting. Megan will be back next week, and we're kicking off a brand new series called Trust Issues. Uh, would love to have you be a part of that on Sunday morning, 9 30 and 11 at the Uptown Theater. We got our Drinks for Drinks event coming up July 12th. Uh, tickets are on sale at drinksfordrinks.com. Grab a poster, put it up in your area of work, uh, invite your friends. It's going to be a, a fantastic kind of sort of outreach event. All of the money, 100% of it, not just profit, just literally every dollar that comes in goes towards clean water projects in developing countries, and we think that's something everybody can get behind. Uh, so July 12th, mark your calendars. Don't go out of town. Don't go camping that weekend. Spend it with us at Drinks for Drinks. Have a great week, guys, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.